Annie the Ox is an angel of mercy with size ten feet. From somewhere across the room comes the sound of a mime getting beaten up. Leah and I get married in the old church by the Soames School. It's a long way from Piper Ninety, so we have to take almost all our holiday in one block. And even then, we won't get much of a honeymoon. I don't care. She walks through the doors of the church, and all I see is light. She smells of jasmine and clean lace. The church smells of old-fashioned furniture polish. Everything is so shiny. The pews, the candlesticks, and even the air seem to be glowing. The altar rail is made of gold, which is curious because I distinctly recall it being an iffy tinted oak. Leah is so bright that I am concerned that she has inadvertently set herself on fire during her journey down the aisle, and only Gonzo's firm reassurances from somewhere nearby prevent me from rushing to the font and putting her out. Assumption Soames sits in the back, and I swear she cries quietly over an embroidered kneeler. Elizabeth is still missing. I'm terribly worried about her, but very glad she isn't here. Zaha Bey, in his Freeman Ibn Solomon drag, sits behind a pillar and grins at everyone. A clump of soldiers and oily rag men occupy the middle of the church, openly amazed that two of their number are actually doing this extraordinary thing. Old man Lubitsch reads a poem he has written. It is very moving. Even though no one except Mar Lubitsch speaks Polish, so we have no clue what it means. At some point, we kneel and are tied together with a bit of embroidered silk, and then the vicar says we're married. It seems a bit easy for such a momentous thing, but everyone claps and cheers, so it must be true. I look round and realize that I am now all shiny too. An enormous number of people want to hug me. Assumption Soames holds me at arm's length, and buries her tiny face in my chest for a moment, and wishes me long life and simplicity. Then she flees and is replaced by Zaha Bey, and the last I see of Elizabeth's mother is the ragged end of her shawl floating in the doorway of the church. We spend our wedding night in an empty house in Cricklewood Cove. There are many of these. The reification was a bad time here. Things came up out of the creek with muddy eyes, and the incidence of Kuru was awfully high among the townsfolk. Some bandits passed through a few months before contact was re-established, and took several families away with them for purposes unknown. The house we are in does not have an unhappy history. It was for sale when the go-away war began. It's not a grave. Just a sweet little two-bedroom with an insignificant kitchen and a log stove. Leah and I make love on the sofa and fall off onto the floor. Laughing, she drags me upstairs to a preposterous four-poster bed with pink lace and heavy curtains. In the morning, a discreet lady from around the corner arrives to make us breakfast, then vanishes again with a sad, soft smile. In the evening, we set off back to the giant metal snail shell, which is our home. The break makes Piper Ninety strange for both of us, because we see it from the outside, 
and start to think too much. Things have changed since we first arrived. The place has tamed and evolved, but it has also become unfamiliar in odd, unsettling ways, like the blind spots in your eyes after you look at the sun. Now, Huster is leaving. In the beginning, just after Piper Ninety arrived and rescued us from certain death, we were somewhere between a mad dictatorship and a sort of daffy anarcho-syndicate, a cooperative venture in self-salvation and heroism. Huster—he has no other name I ever heard—was Piper's captain, her pilot, her master. A grizzled old fart who had managed an oil platform and new engineers and tolerances and red lines and tipping points, and who got on well with just about anyone. Huster had never been military because he had some fever or ague as a kid, which rendered him infirm—the kind of infirm which works thirty hours without a break and can arm wrestle a bear. His word was law. And the various bean counters, really quartermasters, bowed to him and were glad of him because they could see what he was about, and from an intellectual distance they respected it. They were survivors too, and content to facilitate and function and be part of his show. He'd fought wars of attrition against rust and salt water and hurricane winds and drunkards with pneumatic tools. And just about every form of screw-up you could name, he understood about what was going to work and what never had a chance. Huster was technically some species of ambassador, but it was never clear for whom or to whom. Us, I suppose, and no one really bothered to ask who that was and who it might not be. He was just the right man in the right place, and that was so obvious. That no one argued about it. He never exactly gave orders or speeches. He just went ahead with the driving and let us get on with our thing. It's not as if anyone had doubts what the task was, after all. And when something tricky came up, he wandered around Piper Ninety from the roof garden to the engine level, and he talked to people. He had a sort of permanent council composed of someone from our group. Former soldiers, oily ragmen, someone from the general population, mostly a sepulchral woman named Melody with a gimlet eye for bullshit, and the Bay to represent the Kateris, plus anyone else who wanted to come and hang around and talk, and who wasn't a pain in the arse. Quip might have called it a demarchy, except it was more a kind of consultative absolutism, and Sebastian would have said it was fine for a generation. But the moment you had new blood, it could turn on you like a scorpion and eat your brain. At which Quip would have been diverted into a discussion about whether that was actually something scorpions did. And then, about three months ago, Huster got the call. He went to a meeting back along the pipe, all the way back, I think, where the first pump was switched on and the first section was laid on the first piece of solid earth, and they retired him. A more enlightened style of management was called for, apparently more centralized, so that opportunities for efficacy maximization could be cross-competenced by a meritocratically upgraded leadership group. Huster, while he was a good on the ground man, 
was not in possession of the necessary secondary skills to be a full, active co-decisionist within the frame of the revisioning task force, and therefore, while he would retain an analytical input to the forward impetus directional committee, he would not, in fact, be invited to continue in his executive capacity at Piper Ninety. Which was a position now requiring experience in global, holistic, transdisciplinary interactions and pseudo-leveraged quasi-financial exchanges, and a full understanding of the management of a large collective entity with reference to dislocated populations with concomitant instabilities. In short, Huster was fired, and our friendly quartermasterish execs. Were replaced with a skein of, there was no other word, pencil necks. These pencil necks were led by Helen Fust and Ricardo Van Meens, who seemed far too young and far too clean to have achieved anything which merited their promotion to this job. I am at this moment formulating a sketchy taxonomy of paper pushers of this kind, and I have tentatively labelled them as Type C, young and hungry. Sharp elbows, excised conscience. They held on to Huster's counsel, but they called it the advisory panel, as in advise, as in don't have to listen to. So now Huster is leaving. The big guy is taking his stuff and going away some place. His consultative role means getting ignored in committee, and he hasn't bothered to show up for a meeting for two weeks. Maybe there's a town out there which can use him. Maybe this place, Hayadol Point, needs a troubleshooter. Maybe he'll just homestead and find a lady friend and have a parcel of oily rag rugrats. Be that as it may, he's had it with Piper, and God bless her and all who sail in her, but not him, not any more. Huster wanders from table to table in the club room. Which isn't really all that much of a club, or even that much of a room. It's the hull of a small ship pressed into service as part of Piper Ninety's lower reaches, and across the bilges or the hold or whatever you call the bit of thing no one goes into, someone long ago laid bare boards and plates and slats, and then by magic there was furniture and a bar and people day and night, because Piper Ninety never sleeps. The club room has never been so full, nor so sad. Huster is our collective mother, our ruler, and our voice of reason, and our final court of appeal. And now he's getting a new family, and we're being left behind. Jim Hepzibah snuffles into a tall beer, and Sally strokes his arm to say it'll be okay in the end. Tobury Trent mops at his one good eye. Samuel P is making wages on cat races. You okay? Huster says to me when his royal progress brings him to my corner. We'll get by, I guess. Yes, you will. What about you? Oh, all be fine. Be nice not having the cares of the world on my back for a bit. Really nice, actually. He considers it. Yeah. He claps me on the back, and I tell him to look me up, and he says the same applies, and that's it. Huster walks away, and then there are people between us. He's gone. I offer a thoughtful salute with my beer glass.
and hear a sigh. Zaha Bey is leaning against the wall behind. He gazes after Huster and slumps dejectedly into a chair. I've never seen him do this before. The Bey does not flag. He jump-starts. There is no end to his energy. He rubs his palms down his face and looks exhausted. It's starting, he says. I thought it would take longer. What's starting? The... I don't know what you would call it. Not rot, exactly. The not-right things are starting again. He shakes his head. Because of Huster? No, no, no. That's... The bay waves his hand generously, and I wonder briefly whether he's plastered. That's a consequence. Huster is my canary, yes? Yes, I know about canaries. If you're mining for coal, you keep a canary in a cage so that if you hit a gas pocket, the bird will die before you do, and you have time to get out, assuming that you don't explode. Actually, in modern times, the canary has been supplanted by an electrocatalytic sensing electrode, but quite a lot of people still call the unit after its avian predecessor. So, what's starting? What was the first reification? No one knows. No, not our kind. The old kind. The making of an idea into a thing. Shelter? Thump? Yes, he sighs. I didn't mean that either. I had a thought. He ponders. His beer is finished. It is also disgusting. The beer in Piper 90 is made in a huge tank on the other side of the engine room, warmed by the nuclear reactor. Everyone makes jokes about it glowing in the dark. But that isn't true because the radiation would kill the yeast. I'm almost sure it would, anyway. The beer is not toxic so much as it tastes of oil rig. I get him another one. You remember when I was just Freeman Ibn Solomon? Of course. We had whiskey. We did, indeed. And there was a girl with the most curious hair. Yes, I agree. He laughs. You see, even I miss the old days, and my old days were dreadful. And I don't believe we should miss them. I think we should... Strike out! He thumps the table. Make a new world! Not the old one all over again. But people are scared, he shrugs. So what was your thought? Oh, I don't know. I thought, what is this thing, this Jorgmund? How did it begin? What is Fox? Who controls it? How is it made? Jorgmund knows, and no one else. So I asked again, what is Jorgmund? Not the pipe. The pipe is an object which brings relief. But Jorgmund is not only that. Is it a government? A company? He shrugs again. It is both. And what is its purpose? You might say to reclaim the world, but that is our purpose. Jorgmund is a machine for laying, maintaining, and defending the pipe. That is its only task. 
its only priority. In fact, that is the only thing it can see. It is blind to us. It does not even know that we exist, except in so far as we impinge upon that purpose. 